0: Start with prayer this morning, and I'll give you a kind of a, a couple things that I'm going to lift up specifically. And we're going to pray for a local pastor and his wife, James Gilbert, in um, Monea uh, He's a pastor of Bethel A.M.E. Church here in Greenville, and we're going to pray for a local city official. We're going to pray for Steve Alexander, and I'm going to pray for myself and pray for y'all. I when I get nervous, my teeth chatter. I don't know why it is, but like before any event that I'm, that it's going to be challenging for me. I wonder, it's funny, I don't need to take a poll or anything, but I'm curious if I'm the only one in the world that does that. But my teeth are chattering in the back over this sermon. Not as much because of the content, but because it's a very complicated passage. And I just don't want y'all to miss it, because just because it's complicated um, doesn't mean it's not worth engaging. Frankly, if I wasn't preaching verse by verse, I wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole just because it's that hard to expose. But thankfully, he's uh, he's led us to move and take every bite. So I'm going to pray for you as you listen. I'm going to pray for me as I preach. I'm going to pray for a clarity that I barely, if I do at all, have up here that it'll come here and then hit you uh, in your ears and heart. So let's pray. <coughs> Uh, Lord, this morning, first of all, before we pray for our next few minutes, I want to pray for a local pastor, James Gilbert, and his wife, Menea, and for Bethel AME Church. Lord, I want to pray for James and Minea's worship first. just pray that that the ministry that they are about is fueled by worship, that it is first finding uh, application in their marriage, and then in their parenting, and then among their, the people that you gathered at Bethel AME. And Lord, I pray that it'll be in that order. And I pray for those seasons where it may be sort of out of order that you give them endurance and that for the most part that they're characterized by walking in what they've heard in that order. Wife to husband, husband to wife, parent to child, and pastor to people. And Lord, I pray that you'll be glorified in that. And I pray that this this people, the Bethel AME people will be built up and be equipped for worship and wonder. I pray that they'll be compelled to engage needs, um, both physical and spiritual, and connecting those to the gospel and making much of you uh, in their context around Bethel AME. Lord, also we want to pray for a local official and pray for our city manager, Steve Alexander. Uh, Just knowing just some of what's happened in these last couple of years in our context, just imagining how uh, difficult life could be for Steve and his family. Uh, just want to pray for worship, If he, that if he doesn't know you, that he could come to know you through this trial and this time, uh, that if he does know you, that he will uh, cling to you and seek your face and walk with your people uh, through this time. and. Um, Lord, I pray that those who come in contact with him, uh, John Adele, Brian Heron, uh, others that see him often and engage him often, uh, that not only will they be teammates in um, oversight of this city, decisions that are made in the city, but that they could be teammates in being salty and bright and aromatic with Steve. And that Steve could see what faith looks like, could see what Christ looks like, And that he could come to know you by repentance and faith. We pray for that, Lord. In these next few minutes for us, Lord, I pray for a clarity that I barely have, if I do at all. And I'm just thankful for passages that are so difficult that we really have to clamor and claw and scrape. And thankful for the rich gems that you give us when we do. I pray for those gems this morning. I feel like I'm. Um, personally enjoying them and my burden right now is that your people will enjoy them via the feeble and frail work of preaching and I just pray that you'll use these next few minutes for that purpose for your glory um, we pray these things in Christ's name amen turn to Hebrews chapter 2 I was talking with Christy this morning over breakfast and then Scott when I came in the office and between talking with the two of them I realized I, What I think will be helpful is to kind of give you a bird's eye description of what's unfolding before we really look at the grove of trees. So we're going to look at sort of the forest, and then we're going to come in and kind of look at the trees this morning and a grove, specific grove. Um, So bird's eye view, this is kind of Ben's Cliff Notes description of where we're going this morning. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 10, all the way through 13, and we're going to focus on verses 11 through 13, but verses 10 through 13 are connected. Verses 10 introduces the picture of God bringing many sons to glory and doing it by way that's fitting for him through the suffering of the founder of our salvation. That's Christ. It is fitting for our God to bring many sons to glory via the suffering of his son. Now, the thought doesn't end right there, but then it continues with verses 11 through 13. Because 11 begins with four. So, it's connected to that thought of what's fitting for God. And then it goes into where we're going to go this morning. For he who sanctifies, now this isn't verbatim, I haven't. I confess I haven't memorized these verses yet. For he who sanctifies and the ones who are sanctified all have a common source. And then it goes into some references in the Old Testament that expose the reality that we have solidarity with Christ. So, now if you're thoroughly confused, let me see if I can sort this out. It's a difficult passage. God is doing what's fitting for him. He's bringing many sons to glory through the suffering of his son, the founder of our salvation, for we have solidarity with Christ. The title of this sermon is Solidarity with Christ. So that's where it fits in to sort of the flow. Now you might be thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Climb back into the Hebrews context This little church is likely in Rome and likely during the time where Nero Nero is reigning. Some of their family members may have likely served as torches, human torches, in Nero's garden. That's just the most vivid picture of the type of life that they have there in Rome. And what this Hebrew church has been guilty of is they've hidden from suffering, they've locked their door hunker down and though their parents were martyred for their faith they're in a mode where they're just in the survival mode so this picture here in like flying over the forest is Hebrew church who has suffered but currently isn't because you're hiding realize that what was fitting for God was that his son suffered and you have solidarity with him if he suffers you suffer But the beauty is, if he's victorious, which, by the way, he was, you're victorious too. Okay, so that's Ben's summary of the forest. Now, this morning, we're going to climb in to look closer at the grove of verses 11 through 13, specifically the grove of solidarity with Christ. Okay, I'm going to begin in verse 10 because it's all connected. For it was fitting that He, this will be the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the Hebrew church, that's us, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Christ, perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I hope just hearing that passage, you understand the difficulty in store. But I have good news for you. If you pay attention over the next few minutes, you will have your hands around this passage. What I plan to do in these next couple minutes is sort of unpack three things... In verses 11, 12, and 13, sort of at face value, sort of unpack the luggage from the train. And then I want to take those three things and make sense of them. Okay, so that's the map for the morning. Let's unpack verse 13 or verse 11 first. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is about, remember, solidarity with Christ. He starts out by identifying Christ as sanctifier and the many sons brought to glory as those who are being sanctified. That may be a new word for some of you. That word means Christ is the one who is making holy. We find out later in the book he's doing that by his own blood. And that we are being made holy. We are being sanctified. There are places in the book that identify it as a point in time where we are sanctified. And other places that point it, uh, describe it as a process. So it's both and. He reckons us sanctified. But over the course of our lifetimes we are being made holy. This is an essential work. This is a sermon in and of itself that I'm not going to preach. But I'm just going to read this passage. Because I want you to understand how essential this is. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, you could say sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is pretty essential according to this passage. You also need to realize it's something that God is doing to us through Christ. Christ is the agent. He is the sanctifier We are the ones being sanctified. Yet in this passage it says strive for sanctification. So it's both in. He's doing the work as we are going about the effort. We are working within his sanctifying work. He does the work of making us acceptable to God. And you should know that that's good news considering that he's doing it. It's going to be well done. That's a sermon in and of itself and one that I'm not going to preach. At least today. First thing I want you to gather from this one verse that we're going to spend more time on later in the morning is that we have one source. Here's the way I want you to think about it as we come back to it. We're part of one family with Christ. We have one source. We're part of one family. More on that in a moment. Now let's continue with the rest of verse 11 and then on into verse 12. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers because we have one source, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is taken from Psalm 22. So let's turn back there and look for just a few moments. Psalm 22, we engaged in its entirety last week. I shared with you last week that you had a truth wallop in store this week because of our time there. And I really hope and pray that it is. I hope and pray that you see the connection here. Psalm 22, likely a psalm written by David, uh, may have been sorted out or put together by a later psalmist. Um, Some very familiar phrases in Psalm 22. The first two-thirds of this psalm, half to two-thirds, is what's called the testimonium with passages that will sound very familiar, things that you heard from Christ's mouth on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should sound familiar. Verse 6-8, through I am a worm, I'm not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Familiar passages that describe not only the psalmist's suffering, but in more clarity, Christ's suffering on the cross. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of bastion surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You realize this psalm was brought to perfect completion and fruition in the person and work of Christ. The first century Christians would have read this psalm in light of Christ. In fact, there's some early indications that the early psalmists, or early hymnals for the early church, sang this psalm, Connecting it to Christ's cross. Now certainly it has some application for the psalmist. But it had perfect application to Christ. The first part. Some of those excerpts I just read are from the testimonium. From the cross. The second part is what is referenced here in Hebrews chapter 2. And that's where it that picks up in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. If you remember last week this is the turning point for the psalm. We don't know the amount of time for the psalmist where this deliverance took place, but for Christ, it's going to be through his burial and then later his resurrection where now he is among the church that could be translated directly. I will tell of your name, God's name, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Seeing this in the Hebrews context, the Hebrews preacher bring this into his book would help us read this passage. Jesus will tell of Yahweh's name among his brothers. And that's the Hebrew church. And that's Crosspoint Fellowship. And that's believers in Greenville. And other current day believers. Christ makes this his own through the Hebrew's preacher. Jesus will tell of your name, Yahweh, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. That word literally in the Septuagint, is among the church. He will sing God's praise. The Hebrews preacher connecting this to Psalm 22 is to connect the Hebrews worshiper to the reality that it was the cross that made brothers of them. And it was a suffering, painful, difficult work. It was a brotherhood forming work. Now verse 13 And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This excerpt is from Isaiah chapter 8. So turn to Isaiah. The Hebrews, as you're turning there, I'll, I'll give you kind of a clue. I've talked about this before. Something that the Hebrews preacher does is he references a lot of Old Testament passages. He does what we've used before, what we've called satellites to expose and make a point. He's using his own satellites. So we, if we're going to be responsible to the points he's making, we have to climb into the satellites. Last week, we climbed into that Psalm 22 satellite. And now we're just going to take a moment to climb into the Isaiah satellite. This is really pretty doggone cool, in my opinion. Isaiah, let me give you a little bit of context for Isaiah before we read the passage in Isaiah chapter 8. The nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. Judah is the, the portion of Israel, the southern part of Israel, that Isaiah is primarily focused on. He's not exclusively focused on, but he's primarily focused on this region. He's a prophet to Judah and the northern kingdom at a time where they're about to go into exile. They're about to be invaded by the Assyrians. It's 700 and something something years before Christ. Okay, between 800 and 700 BC is the time frame for Isaiah. North and south is a mess at this point. Just to give you a few little excerpts, Chapter 1, verse 4. You don't need to turn there. I want you to stay in 8 and be ready. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. So that's the condition of the people. Okay? Now keep your eye on Isaiah. This will be likely be a familiar passage to you. Isaiah chapter 6 is where he sees the throne room vision of God. It's a pretty awesome moment where he sees his holiness and he's like looking for a crack in the floor to hide. And then here's where I pick up in verse 8. Listen. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send to this messed up people? Isaiah, this is his commission to go to a messed up people. Who will go for us? And he says, Here I am send me you probably heard that passage preached before kind of a missionary go get them sort of sermon it's pretty cool but in context it's sort of like oh man this is gonna be a bummer and he said okay isaiah go and say to this people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O oh Lord? How long I got to be about that ministry of preaching to people that as I preach, they're going to become deaf, hard-hearted, and blind. I thought it's supposed to work the other way. He says, No, this is what I want you to do. I want you to preach. And he said, preach. And he said, how long? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants. He's talking about the Assyrian invasion. And houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. That's the context for Isaiah chapter 8. Now, I'm going to begin in verse 11. And I'm going to piece this together for you here in a moment. So hang in there. The Lord spoke thus to me. Now you remember, Israel's a mess, north and south. Judah is the one that that Isaiah is primarily focused on. Isaiah is going to be a preacher and prophet to this people. The more he preaches, the less they're going to hear, the less they're going to see, the harder their hearts are going to be. Pick up in verse 11. The Lord spoke thus to me, and with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Make a little mental note or a written note of what you hear unfolding in this passage. Isaiah is saying, God is saying through Isaiah, to the people, the the things you're about to hear. This is going to have complete relevance to the Hebrews in Rome and to you in Greenville. So you're going to see some pretty cool dots connected. Listen. Do not walk in the way of this people, this, this train wreck of Israel, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's going to become a sanctuary to some and a stone of offense, a rock, a a stone of stumbling to others. Many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now, Isaiah bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. This is Isaiah talking now. I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. That's the first quote there in Hebrews chapter 2 of the Isaiah reference. I will trust in him. And here's the second one. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Okay. I can just imagine how confused y'all are right now. But I have really good news for you. If you hang in there, this is all going to come together here in just a moment. Here are the major points that Isaiah is making to the people, that God is making through Isaiah. Now, the people are messed up, remember? It's a train wreck. Isaiah is going to bring this good news, but here's what he's telling this little remnant of followers that are following Isaiah. Don't walk in the way of fearful people. Secondly, honor God and let him be your fear and dread. Third, in honoring him, he's going to be a sanctuary for some and a rock of stumbling and offense to others. Fourth, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. You could summarize that as embrace it, hold it close, be faithful to this sweet message, Isaiah and your followers. Wait with Isaiah for the Lord. That's the next one. You can trust Yahweh. Isaiah does. And then in so doing, as you do these things, the followers of Isaiah will be signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. Now here he's referring specifically to him and his families. Not exclusively, but especially to his sons. He says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord. Now, here's what a sign is. This is so cool. A sign is something visible that indicates the presence of something else. Like if someone said to you, this is a sign of the times. You're talking about some specific thing that you can see that you believe when you make a statement like that is an evidence of a situation that's true of the the age or the times or the context or the culture. A sign is a visible of of the the presence of something else. A portent is an omen. An omen is something that points towards something that's going to happen. So a sign is a visible... Of a current reality. A portent. Is a visible. Of something that's coming. Now. Here's the really cool thing. That's hard for me to develop in the next couple minutes. But I bet I know I can. Isaiah spends a lot of time developing this. But his name. And the names of his sons. Mean something. If you remember the story of Hosea. You know Hosea is told to go marry a prostitute. Because he's going to be a picture of. The, the relationship between God and his people because the people were whoring. And he names his children who are a product of that. One of them, he names his daughter, No Mercy. He names his, his, his son, Not My People. Names mean something. Isaiah, his name means Yahweh is salvation. Remember, he says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and importance. His name means Yahweh is salvation. You're about to see a train wreck north and south, Israel. Things are going to be terrible. You're going to experience some severe suffering. But remember, Isaiah, as you see him walking around, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. Now his next son, or he has two sons, his first son, and I assume it's his oldest, is named Sheer Jashub. That's developed in chapter 7. Sheer Jashub means a remnant of, will return. This is the sign. This is a visible, visual aid, a visible reality that, that points toward an ultimate reality. Israel, you're about to go through serious suffering as Assyria comes in there and invades your land. But as you see Sheer Jashub walking around, know that God is saving a remnant know that he's not going to let his people be completely destroyed, but that he's saving a remnant. As you see, hey, there's Sheer Jashem. Yeah, God is good. God is going to be faithful. Now, he's the sign. Now, the other son is the omen and the portent. His name is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For real. I found, I was actually looking online, I found there's like a musician who has that name, for real. Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. But that name means speed the spoil or speed the hasten booty B-O-T-Y not booty like that you're sitting on. Hasten booty speed spoil. That's the omen that's pointing toward the Assyrian invasion. So you see Shir Jashub and you're like man God is faithful. Yes. Good to see you Shir Jashub. Have a good day buddy. You see Meir Shalal Hashbaz and you go, Oh, God is going to kick some bootay. And he's going to do it through the As- Assyrian invaders. Everybody liked to see Shir Jeshua, but they didn't like to see Meir Shalal Hashbaz. I said, Oh, Meir Shalal Hashbaz, there he comes. God is going to get serious and he's going to bring judgment to this people through the Assyrian invaders. He and his sons are signs and portents to Israel. Their expressions of the faithfulness of God. Their expressions of their trust in God, that God would be God, God would not be mocked, and God will be God in, in his time and his way. Isaiah is a visual aid that Yahweh is salvation as you're going through this Assyrian invasion. Sheer Jashub is a visual aid that God is faithful and he will preserve a remnant. And Meher Shalal Hashbaz is a visual aid that our God is just. He will not be mocked. And the judgment is coming at the hands of the Assyrians. Now, if you made that journey, I hope you did, for the three things, we sort of unpacked the luggage from those verses, verses 11 through 13. Now I want to sort of make sense of them. First of all, the first piece of luggage is, or the first item that I want us to consider, is that the sanctified, that's us, that's the Hebrews people, and the sanctifier, all have one source. Go back to your verse 11. We have one source, you could say a common source. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is a difficult passage. It's a difficult truth, what he's talking about. There's some thoughts that he's meaning one humanity. But then that would imply that he's calling everybody his brothers, all humanity. And unless, um, unless you believe in universalism, you can't go there. He's not calling all humanity his brothers. He's calling the many sons who are brought to glory his brothers. So it could mean a common new humanity if we wanted to connect to some Ephesians and passages like that. Where he seems to be going here is to indicate that we have a common father and a common family, and hence we're called brothers. Of course, he's not ashamed to call us brothers because we're part of a common family. Here, this would connect to the reality of us having solidarity with Christ, meaning that we participate in his victory as family members, But we also participate in his suffering as family members. This connects back to what this must have meant for the Hebrews people as they're going through suffering. And this connects them to what's being accomplished through Christ's suffering to show them that suffering is purposeful. It's not stupid. It's not just because. It's not just to make things difficult. It's what's fitting for our God and he brings many sons to glory through it. He did it through Christ and he's doing it through his brothers and I'm going to imply sisters as well. We have a common family and hiding behind locked doors is inappropriate. See the connection to Hebrews? Avoiding suffering is inappropriate. It's what we do as a family. Secondly, we have a common song. We have a common family and we have a common song. This is from verses 11b and 12. I'm going to read them for you again so you can climb back into them. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation or the church. I will sing your praise. He's not ashamed. To call us brothers because we have a common father and a common family. And because he's the founder of salvation, bringing many sons to glory. I wanted to climb into this in a moral sense. I wanted us to really get this in a moral sense. This would be like a high and regal and good and excellent king becoming an earthworm. I'm not talking a king earthworm I'm talking a a real king in a moral sense this would be like a high and good and great and rich and mighty and awesome king becoming an earthworm and then as he's become an earthworm he looks around at us as fellow earthworms and says I'm not ashamed to call you royal I mean us earthworms are looking around going what? Now, that's crazy. He's a high and good and mighty and great and majestic, powerful king. He became an earthworm, and we're looking around going, he's not ashamed to call us royalty? That should leave us surprised if we're seeing what this is saying here in a moral sense. It should leave us, first of all, marveling that he stooped to wormdom. And then secondly, it should leave us surprised that he would make royal brothers... Of moral worms. Understand I'm talking a moral illustration. I'm not calling you worm. I'm talking a moral contrast. And holiness contrast. Between God and us. That little illustration. As ridiculous as it is. Doesn't scratch the surface of what actually happened. When he took on flesh. And the marvel that he calls us. Brothers. The picture here of him singing Psalm 22 is the first picture that I've ever really seen of Christ as song leader. I was talking to Clint and the rest of the band about this earlier. How important this is to see Christ as song leader. It should help us kind of think like, well, we're we're adopted into this family through faith. We become part of a singing family. Of course, my mind went back to when I was a kid thinking about the Osmonds you know, they all sang, Jeff Ott's shaking his head, he must not like the Osmonds. What? Who doesn't like the Osmonds? The Partridge family, Carpenters, Jacksons, Gaithers. You know, these families that sing together. Think about the faith being the family that you've been adopted into that, of course, song is appropriate part of our worship because that's what Jesus leads us in. He's presented here as song leader, and the point of his song is having joy and exaltation at the brotherhood forming and enjoying his father with him. That's the impetus behind his song. It's a joyful song. It's a song of exaltation. I don't know how many years ago it was, four years ago? We had a sermon, a, a series of sermons called the He Stinketh series. Many of you have listened to that series of sermons. I think it was one of the most shaping series of sermons that I've had the opportunity to preach. But it wasn't complete because it could leave the impression that when God escorts us into heaven, that he's holding his nose. All right, I, I know that's ridiculous, but <laughs> he just kind of put it up with us. Okay. Dasty little things come on in i'm gonna put up with you because that's kind of god that i am i enjoyed one commentator that said he doesn't hold his nose in bring us into heaven the direct translation there for that passage is he does not blush to call us his brothers the royal king who became an earthworm does not blush to call other earthworms royal brothers. When he's saved, he really saved. He doesn't sit back with his nose held, just putting up with us in this family that we've been adopted into. That's the joy behind what Christ is singing. That sermon series that we dealt with was very appropriate for us, and we needed it at the time, but it wasn't the whole story. Turn to Luke chapter 15. I want to show you this. Luke chapter 15. I'm just loving this. I mean, loving this. Remember, we're talking about the common song led by Christ as song leader. Listen to these two parables. I'm going to save a third one for later at our Lord's Supper. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Given this little silly earthworm illustration, we could say the earthworms were inching closer to him. Okay, just grab that illustration. All right, go ahead and grab it. The earthworms are kind of making their way, drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, "This man receives worms and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them." So he told them this parable: What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, I want you to just, I I, I think the first time in my whole life I've ever read these parables that I've read a hundred times, seeing Christ as rejoicing. I've always read it as me rejoicing. If I have the chance to lead someone to Christ, yeah, I'm rejoicing. But I'm seeing Christ as rejoicing here. Look at it. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and when he comes home he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You ever seen Christ rejoicing over your repentance and faith? I mean legitimately rejoicing celebrating it, exulting in it not just holding his nose and tolerating you, but rejoicing in it. Look at this next one. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, watch, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I've read that for years, seeing the angels as the ones who are really exulting and joyful. And like God, he's just kind of sitting back going, yeah, angels, you sing it up. I'm pretty awesome, aren't I, to bring that stinko into glory. Read it again. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who, oh, no, the next one. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The joy that's before the angels of God is as they're watching God rejoice over the sinner who's repented. Sure, the angels join in. Sure, they're excited about it too. But it is a derived joy. You ever seen God rejoicing over your salvation? You ever seen Him exulting over your salvation? See the son here leading in song, calling you his brothers, enjoying God together. That's a new thing for me. Especially as a bunch of reformed people, man, we are so in tune with our depravity. We can hardly get the stench of our depravity out of our nose to enjoy this reality. Listen to this passage. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Those of you who wrestle with some of the reformed teaching of depravity, you hear this illustration of the worm and you go, yeah, I'm such a worm. I'm so horrible. I'm a piece of trash. See your God exulting over you. See Christ leading in joyful worship over your repentance and faith. We have one source. We have one family. He calls us brothers. And then he leads us in song together. Enjoying what God has done for us in him. That's got to round out our view of God. What a good and gracious and marvelous God to find joy and exaltation in our repentance and faith. Man, that does my heart some good. I hope some of you who live in that place of feeling like a piece of trash can enjoy that. See Jesus singing over your repentance and faith. See him exalting over you. See it. Third, a common trust. We have a common family, a common song, and a common trust. Verse 13 of Hebrews says... Remember, this is from Isaiah. I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You remember their names. I've already forgot the one that starts with S. I I should remember that one easier than the other one. The other one's Meir Shalal Hashbaz, and then the other one starts with an S. Behold, I and the children God has given me will be signs and portents in Israel. If we're going to connect to Isaiah's point and then connect to the Hebrews point, And then to understand what it means to us here. We have to first of all recognize that Isaiah is a type of Christ. Is he Christ? No. But he's a type. We have, our Bibles are full of types that help us understand who Christ is and what he's done. And in this passage, we see that Isaiah is a type of Christ. As Isaiah, his sons and his disciples, trusted and were signs and portents to Israel. Christ trusts with God's sons us and his disciples and we're too signs and portents to this generation. So the Hebrews writer is putting these words in Jesus' mouth saying I and my children that's the Hebrews and that's us God gave me will be signs and portents in our context. So you remember the little list that I gave you from Isaiah? Let's go back and grab that list. It's very appropriate for us to do that because the Hebrews writer takes takes us there. You don't need to turn there. Just remember it. Remember some of those things that God is saying to Isaiah or through Isaiah to his people. And hear it as a Hebrew worshiper in Rome in the time of Nero. Don't walk in the way of fearful people. Don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Christians in Rome whose granny served as a human torch. Don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Don't be afraid of what others are afraid of, because remember, we have the mojo. Remember, our Lord reigns. He's seated and in session. Remember that. Nero's God is dead. Man, this thing comes alive when you see this in context. Honor God and let him be your fear and dread. And in honoring him, he'll be a sanctuary for some and a rock of stumbling and offense to others. Some will consider him and his gospel a sweet aroma and others yet will say that it's the aroma of death. Bind up the testimony and seal the teaching, embrace it and be faithful to it. Those same points can be made for the Hebrews and then for us and wait with Jesus for Yahweh, because you can trust Him. And in so doing, when you do these things, the followers of Jesus will be signs and portents in Greenville, in Caddo, in Quinlan, in Rockwall, Merritt, Commerce, Astana, Roy City, Teopisca, Aman. You'll be a sign and portent, When you trust Christ at GHS, at GCS, at GMS, at Lamar, at Bowie, you'll be a sign and portent in the clubs that you're part of, in the organizations that you're part of. You will be what we've been called to be in city council, in soccer, in scouts, at L3, at the construction site, and in your den, we're called to be signs and portents too. We're called to be visual aids that Yahweh is salvation, that Yahweh is saving a remnant, and that Yahweh will not be mocked and justice is coming. When you trust Christ in your mess, in your suffering or difficulty, you are a sign and portent To our context. Isaiah had. Shear Jashub and Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Jesus has. Me and you. You see that. That's the point that's being made there. As Isaiah had a couple of boys. It would be walking visual aids. Of the faithfulness of God. Jesus has us. Jesus had the Hebrews. And Jesus has. Us our very identities testify to the faithfulness of our God. Now, that's where the Hebrews preacher was taking the Hebrews people, and that's where I want you guys to go this morning. We have one common family. We have one common song led by our Savior. And the third thing Which I'm having a look at my notes. Sorry, (laughs) it's hard preaching. We have a common trust. We have a common trust, just like Isaiah. We have a common trust. Now, I want us to have our Lord's Supper together in light of where we've gone this morning. Luke chapter 15. There's a third parable that I didn't read, and I want you to hear this parable in light of what we've talked about this morning. And engage this meal newly in light of what we've considered. Listen to this parable. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. As he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him But while he's still a long way off. Watch your Savior do what he's about to do. Watch your Heavenly Father do what he's about to do. Well, while he's still a long way off, his Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Exaltation. Exaltation. See a God that delights in you? See a savior that delights in you? The son said to him, "Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son." but the Father said to his servants, "Bring the best robe. Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. And kill it. Because we're going to have supper together. We're going to enjoy my goodness and my grace. We're going to enjoy family being restored. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Sometimes we come to this meal all beat down like man life's so hard and that's an appropriate way to come to the meal but come to it this morning celebrating (laughs) come to it celebrating that he calls us brothers come to it celebrating that he exalts in us and we have much to enjoy and much to celebrate let me pray and we'll take the supper together (sighs) God, this is a marvel. When we really consider this passage that is difficult and complicated. First of all, we just have to be amazed that you would send your son to become what he became. And that he would look to his left and his right and he would call the likes of us and the likes of the Hebrews brothers. And that then he would lead us in song of joy and exaltation. Not blushing to call us his brother when we're so blushable. Lord, I pray these realities fuel our celebration as we dine together. That we have the kind of God that runs to meet us. That we have the kind of God that doesn't hold his nose, that salvation is that complete and that perfect. Lord, I pray that we dine in celebration in these next few minutes. We realize and recognize what we hope the Hebrews church realized and recognized is that the work that built this brotherhood and sisterhood was the work of the cross. That's what we remember right now and we celebrate it. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. The passage that I, I read and didn't give you a reference, I don't know why I didn't give you a reference because I didn't want you to mess with page turning. Zephaniah 3.17 the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save I know y'all spend a lot of time in Zephaniah so you probably know exactly what it says he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love he will exult over you with loud singing that's good medicine right there Uh, if you came this morning for the first time and you're like man I kind of feel like I stepped into the middle of a conversation you did but we have sermons online for that purpose. So you can go back and grab sort of the story. Uh, we've been in Hebrews since, uh, I guess, around the beginning of the year. or No, before that. Well before that. Um, but the conversation has, is ongoing. So I would recommend, if you want to know where to start, to sort of get a sense of where we are in the conversation, start on the first Sunday in January. Because that was the first of a series of sermons that dealt with dominion. And uh, this is sort of um, connected to that thought. So um, I encourage you to do that.